0: Our second lesson is taken from 1 Peter. It is taken from the fourth chapter, and I'm reading from the New International Version. We're reading verses 1 through 6 of the fourth chapter, and then verses 12 through 16. These verses augment our lesson today, which has to do with being persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead now verse 12 dear friends do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in Christ's sufferings, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Amen. If you received one of these little bulletin inserts, which is in your bulletin. You will note on the first page of it, down toward the bottom in blue, services were packed and lasted a minimum of four hours each when former astronaut Jim Irwin recently toured six cities in Russia. Drivers for his group were arrested twice and Soviet police personally observed several meetings. Irwin, who now heads the High Flight Foundation, a Christian outreach said, Quote, frequently Christians asked me what believers have to sacrifice to be a Christian in the United States. I found it difficult to answer. He found it difficult to answer because in America we have peddled and pervaded across its land a Christianity that really demands very little of its people. But it is put forward for its emotional benefits to lull us in our fears and to comfort us in our loss, to make us celebrated athletes or successful businessmen or great show people. We have often become so worldly that there is so little distinction between those who claim to be followers of Christ and the world that we do not know the difference. So we're really not worth persecuting. Now Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Yours is happiness when men shall heap their insults on you and shall persecute you and shall say all kinds of evil things against you for my sake. Your reward will be great in heaven for that is the way it was with the prophets which were before you. Now then, Let's stop and think about how this applies to us for a few moments. If we have lived as Jesus told his people to live in the Beatitudes, these attitudes which ought to be in this designation of the character and the conduct of a Christian, if we reckon ourselves to be poor in spirit to the place that we want God to come in and dwell our lives, if we reckon ourselves to mourn for sin, not only the sin in our own lives, but for the sin around us in the world, if we are disciplined, if we become meek and teachable and coachable, so that as we live, our increase of years brings an increase in an understanding of his ways in dealing with us, which we apply in our daily walk for the glory of God, if we being recipients of this grace, know the righteousness, that is, the ability to discern between what is right and wrong in our relationship with God and man, and we receive the mercy of God for the forgiveness of our sins and show that mercy to other people, if we become pure in heart rejecting the debauchery and the filth which is so often pervading around us and look at God and His purpose and will for our lives, if we become reconcilers, peacemakers, who reach out to others and seek to draw them together in him, why on earth should we be persecuted? We would be persecuted and are persecuted when we do these things because we're different from the world about us. One of our elders asked me last week if I planned to say something about the sale of alcohol this week because our program is broadcast. Of course, preachers used to always preach temperance lessons. You used to get these in the Sunday school papers. But have we really become better disciplined about alcohol? I don't think so. There's a higher percentage of alcoholism now than ever in the history of the United States. I saw a man that I used to know years ago as a friend, Joe Califano, making a report on the NBC program last week, the Today program about the Surgeon General's new determination of cancer and tobacco and I'm glad that he made it because I think we ought to be aware of anything that causes misery and pain but I don't know of any other one single thing that causes as much harm in the United States of America today as alcohol and yet I wonder what's happened to all the lions of the pulpit when it comes to preaching and speaking against it And seeking to do without it, not because it's liquid sin, but because we want to set a better example for those who are round about us. And because we do want to at least clean up one area of our lives and stand for Jesus Christ. May I say to you that years ago when I first, as we said in Texas then, surrendered my life to preach, I did not want to be a preacher. I've often said it, I thought the only thing worse than being a preacher would be to be an undertaker. And, and I didn't want any part of it. And I, I said to God, look, you let me be a lawyer, I'll make a lot of money, I'll give you half of it. You, you let me be a politician, and I'll do all these things. Let me do anything, but please don't make me go into the ministry. That was the one thing I sought to avoid. And when I made the talks in church and people came up to me and told me what a fine minister I'd make, it used to just make my blood boil. I thought, my goodness, I don't want to be a preacher. Why don't they leave me alone? And uh, then I came to the place with God where I learned that you don't call the shots with him. You kneel and you ask him what he wants you to do and you follow his calling. And I knelt one night in a house in West Texas and I surrendered my life to do whatever God wanted me to do, even be a preacher. I thought that was the ultimate And and then uh, uh, I remember a little country church in a little town called Happy, about 17 miles south of Canyon City, where Paladuro Canyon is. They had a little Presbyterian church there, and it had all of 35 members. They didn't want to close it down, and there were some cowboys who came to it and some wheat farmers, and the Presbytery of Dallas, which controlled it, which was 400 and something miles from out there, Uh, sent an executive secretary out there to interview me because they understood i was a candidate for the ministry and they asked if i would take this uh, little church and i agreed to do so as a student when i was a junior in college and uh, i must have preached more trial sermons than any preacher i went there and preached sunday after sunday and then finally the poor folks took me as their pastor. I remember an old trail driver from years gone back whose name was Jess Kuykendall, an old cowboy. And one night I got a call from Jess's son, Conway, who ran a grain elevator, and Conway was crying. And he said, can you come to the house? And I came to the house, and Conway had a brother who had just graduated from the University of Texas with his master's degree. He had a little pocket New Testament with him when he was killed. He had it a, made a decision for Christ uh, up in some meeting up in Colorado Springs, and he had written about it in the back of his New Testament. Conway had it. He was crying. His brother and his mother and Jess had been driving from the place where we lived toward Amarillo, to go to Bonham, Texas to a cattle sale where of all people Sam Rayburn was selling off some of his cattle herd. He used to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And Jess knew him and they were going there for the cattle sale. And on the way, two drunks pulled out of a, a bar on the side of the road and they came onto to the wrong entrance of a highway, hit their car head on and killed the young man who had just graduated from the University of Texas and his mother and crippled up Jess. The first funeral that I ever had and the only funeral that I ever had where there were two coffins in front of me. I was scared to death because I didn't know how to conduct a funeral. And the Methodist preacher very graciously had the service in his church. It was a larger church than the little tiny Presbyterian church. And the thing was packed full of people. The Methodist preacher, I always thought he was kind of sissy, but he was a very uh, compassionate man, but he did a very brave thing. Uh, I remember at the end of the service, it was all the people were standing in the back who couldn't get in and outside, and the Methodist preacher, who did not want to see those bars up and down the highway, said at the conclusion of the service when people stood and passed by to view the remains of those who had died, he said all of you who voted to put alcohol in our town come by and take a good look at your boat and he sat down it took a lot of courage for a man to say that and a lot of people did a lot of thinking and you'll do a lot of thinking too when you see the porno joints and the strip joints between here and Asheville, and you think about some drunk pulling out on the road that you face royal mclean There's another man who made a great impression upon me. I remember when he took an Associated Press article of a man in Bradenton, Florida, 35 years old, a plumber, finished his work at 5 in the afternoon, stopped by the local bar, tossed down a few quick ones, got back in his truck and started home. A little light rain began to fall. He turned on the windshield wipers. He saw something yellow weaving in front of him, His reactions weren't too quick because the alcohol had gone right to his brain, and bam, he hit a kid on a bicycle. He knew that if the cops stopped him with the alcohol in his breath, he'd be in trouble, so he sped up and went on home. The doorbell rang. He was upstairs in his bedroom with the door locked, and his wife brought two policemen standing in raincoats upstairs to meet him. He had just run over his own eight-year-old boy and killed him, drunk. These are things that make you think. And Christians do have a responsibility to act in concerted action. And if someone doesn't like you, then that's no surprise either. Because that's right in keeping with what Jesus is talking about in this commandment where he says, Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says that we are to rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Maybe we're not persecuted enough because we don't even merit persecuting. We're not strong enough for the Lord. We do not live enough for Him, and there's not enough distinctive qualities about us. This is only one area of trouble that I mentioned this morning. There are many others. Racial prejudice, injustice, and in a thousand other fields that we could talk about. But we Christians have a responsibility before the Lord, and we need to live up to that responsibility. We would be following in the steps of Jesus. Jesus. We talk about witnessing for Jesus Christ, witnessing for him in the world in which we live. It's interesting that the word witness is the same word for martyr. There's no difference in it in Greek. Martyr and witness are the same thing. The earliest Christians suffered for Jesus Christ. I remember how this was brought home to me, Dr. Harry A. Ironside, who used to be a marvelous old Bible preacher, said that as a little boy he learned to love Jesus and he wanted to accept him as his savior and he came into his mother one day and said to her mother I want to accept Jesus to be my savior and lord but if I become a Christian then all the boys at school are going to laugh at me and she said to him some words that remind me of my own good mother she said Harry they may be able to laugh you into hell but they can't laugh you out of it. Now that's worth remembering. They may be able to laugh you into hell, but they can't laugh you out of it. Well, why were these earliest Christians persecuted? If you stop and read the story of Christianity, you see that it was not long after Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit came upon the earliest Christians at Pentecost that the Christians began to be opposed. But instead of this causing them to be quiet, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Actually rejoiced. You remember how they beat Peter, the one who had denied Jesus and they told Peter that he was to speak no more in that name, in that name of Jesus. And Peter said to them that whether it was right for them to obey men or God, they were to judge. But he said, we're going to keep on speaking in that name. And he did. And so did the Christians spread. But why would they be persecuted? Historians tell us that they disrupted work. Suppose you were a Christian stonecutter. And someone was erecting a temple to uh, the goddess Aphrodite, the the goddess of, of sex. You knew what kind of debauchery went on with the temple prostitutes and you didn't want to have anything to do with that. And the stonecutter's union would say you didn't report for work. Why don't you come to this place where you're to work? But as a Christian you had to be different. You couldn't participate in something which was debasing and degrading and so you would have nothing to do with it. Most of the best restaurants were connected with some heathen temple. The pagans knew how to get all the mileage out of their sacrifices, so if they took a prime steer and they sacrificed it, they gave certain parts which were to be burned for the gods, and then they took the rest of it and had a big feed. And so they sent out invitation saying, My Lord Bacchus, the goddess of drink, Uh, uh, The God of drink invites you to come to a feast at such and such place and if you went there there would be a libation that would be consumed to this uh, goddess and what would a Christian do? He had to say no that he would not go to something like that. Paul makes allusion to this in his letter to the Corinthians when he says you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of devils that there are times when Other people will do things that you cannot do, but you will separate yourselves from them and pull yourself out from that thing. And let me say this, when you do this in the right way and you do it for the glory of Jesus Christ, there are people who respect you. It's been a long time ago now, and I don't think I'll be misunderstood if I say it, but I used to be close to a president of the United States. And once I came into the uh, Oval Office of the White House, when... The drinks were being served, and he was talking to someone about me, and he didn't know I was standing in the back of him. And he said, now, nah, old Calvin is coming in, and he said he doesn't even know what whiskey tastes like. <laughs> he, he said, we'll have to get him a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> but you know, he was bragging on me, and he rattled his glass for them to put more in his, but he told them to go and get me the soft drink. Really? He was glad that I didn't take it. It didn't offend him that I didn't take the alcohol. Rather, I think he was proud of it. Uh, He was glad that someone could say no thank you even to the President of the United States. Uh, And I'm not setting myself up as any uh, paragon of virtue. I have many faults that I would like to overcome, uh, but drinking whiskey isn't one of them. (laughs) Uh, My mother uh, ingrained that into my head. And I'm saying that uh, we Christians can create a witness for Jesus Christ by abstaining. Uh, Just as we are taught here, Uh, Peter Marshall, in that first wonderful book that Catherine Marshall wrote about him, a man called Peter. Uh, Peter Marshall was in Washington, the chaplain of the United States Senate. Someone asked him to take a drink at a luncheon and he said, uh, at a dinner and he said, no, thank you. And they said, why? and Peter Marshall, a very brilliant man, said, are you really interested or are you just asking this question? And the man didn't, was a little taken back. He really didn't mean to get into a deep conversation, but Peter Marshall had caught him. And the guy said, well, I'm really interested. And Peter Marshall said, okay, we'll have lunch tomorrow and I'll talk to you about it. So they made a date for lunch the next day and uh, Catherine Marshall called this distinguished citizen, Mr. Jones, But she called the book Mr. Jones Meet the Master because the next day when Peter Marshall explained why he had been different, he made a very beautiful and tactful witness and testimony for Jesus Christ and led the man to the Lord. Mr. Jones met the master. He saw a quality of life that was different about Peter Marshall and it made uh, this man look to the master. Well, Jesus knew that those who lived the way that Christians were going to live were going to undergo persecution. And knowing this thing, he wished that they would be informed ahead of it about what was happening. That's one of the ways in which you can be prepared for a trial is not to be shocked when it comes your way. And this is one of the, th- one of the reasons that I read from 1 Peter a while ago, that whole book. Of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are undergoing trial. One great pastor says that we can deal with the suffering and the trials that come to us. When we know they're coming. And Jesus said they would come. We can deal with them when we know we're not alone. There are other believers who stand with us. We can deal with them when we know that God has a purpose in it. That it will be to his own glory. We can deal with it when we know who's in charge, that the sovereignty of God is ruling over all of this, and that he will ultimately bring his purposes out. Think of any trial that you have to face, and those four things will give you some help in remembering them. Last March the 31st, when I had a heart attack at St. Mary's Hospital at the Mayo Clinic, I had been forewarned that surgery might be a possibility. And it helped me to know that something like that might happen. It didn't come as any great shock to me when they told me that it might be. I knew I was not alone. I had a great Christian friend who was with me there. I had many people who were praying for me here. And above all, I had that friend who never leaves us, the Lord Jesus Christ present. I knew that there was a purpose behind it when they wheeled me into the strange looking operating theater with all of its sophisticated equipment. I knew that the people weren't doing the operation just to get another operation out of the way and another statistic on the wall, but that there was a purpose behind it. I had met the surgeon who had done more than 200 operations like it a year. And then I knew that above all of this, God, God was over all and that his hands would be guiding. And as B.J. Thomas' great little song puts it, you're going home. Whether you go home to be with Jesus in heaven or home to be with your friends in Montreat, what difference does it make if you're in the center of the Lord's will and you're in his hand? You can take it when you reconcile yourself to it in that way because God is speaking to you. I can remember once flying in a big 15-ton Delta Dagger F-102 over the skies of Labrador, and uh, they began to let me fly the airplane some, and I was glad to fly because as a young boy I had soloed in a plane, but I would have been scared out of my wits had that other man not been in the plane with me, that good major who had his hands ready to put onto the controls of the aircraft immediately. And so when we rolled the big jet airplane and I was eight miles high and the thing goes faster than the speed of sound and you could see the guy's eyes in the airplane next to you, made me feel real good that the major could reach over right quick and catch hold of the controls if anything went wrong. And believe you me, I gingerly held him so that he could take them very quickly too. Uh, well, now the Lord has control. This is one of the great doctrines in our church, the sovereignty of God. And this is what Jesus wants us to know here. And this is what makes Christianity uh, begin to speak to the world in which we live when we think of that remarkable address that, that um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn made at Harvard. Through intense suffering, he said, our country has now achieved a spiritual development of such intensity that the Western system in its present form of spiritual exhaustion does not look attractive. What's he talking about? He goes on to say that after six decades, 60 years, of persecution and intense suffering that the people there have who have become believers and he is a believer and a member of the Russian Orthodox Church have become believers in the Lord Jesus through intense suffering that they're not just an adjunct of a gracious way of living with its uh, television type of morality easygoing and Whatever comes to pass is all right, but they have suffered. And so he goes on to say that he is not impressed by what he sees in the West. And he tells the people that, frankly, he can't commend the West as a model. Should someone ask me whether I would indicate the West such as it is today as a model to my country, frankly, I would have to answer no. I could not recommend your society in its present state as an ideal for the transformation of ours. Through intense suffering, our country has now achieved a spiritual development of such intensity that the Western system in its present state of spiritual exhaustion does not look attractive. Why does he say these things? After suffering decades of violence and oppression, the human soul longs for something higher and purer. And warmer than those offered by today's mass living habits, introduced by the revolting invasion of publicity, by television stupor, and by your intolerable music. He speaks to us. And not only speaks to us, he wonders what's going to happen in our world. He wonders what's going to happen to it, and he says, that he thinks there'll be another war. He doesn't think it will be an atomic war. The next war which does not have to be an atomic one and I do not believe it will be may well bury Western civilization. He is pointing this out to us because he wants us to go back to the spiritual heritage which we've had He wants us to go back to the fact that the morality which is based upon a faith in God makes men strong and women strong so that they can suffer persecution when when persecution comes and that faith burns brighter and that shaken torch uh, lights the path for many in the world. He is trying to get us to understand that His closing sentence at Harvard says, No one on earth has any other way left but upward. That is to look up to God. What a tremendous thing that we should have a man from Russia who comes here to tell us about those things which cannot be shaken that will remain because people suffer for Jesus Christ. Other people will pay attention to them. Now then there are those who say, what shall I do when the time of suffering comes? Most of us haven't really suffered terribly for the Lord. We have some in our congregation have. They've come out of Eastern Europe. Some have come out of Cuba and they know what it's like and they know how painful it is and Senora Senora raised the other Sunday after our young people had presented their program here said to me at the back of the church, this is the thing that makes it so hard in Cuba. Because the church has only old people, we don't have the young people coming up like this with the knowledge of Christ. We need to pray for those who suffer persecution. We need to think about them. What would you do when the time comes for you to suffer persecution? If you're a witness for Jesus Christ, would you really be a martyr? Would it be with your life that you would go for him? Would it all be on the line for him? Cory ten Boom has a book about her father. It's a very beautiful book. It shows the importance of a Christian family. And she tells how when the Nazis came into Holland, and began to oppress the people so cruelly, and how they took the Jews and began to send them to their great concentration camps and to the crematoria where they were burned. That she remembered in the suffering that she endured, and so many members of her family died, and her father had died right after he was arrested, an old man how that he had told her as a little girl when she wondered if she would be true to Jesus if she had to suffer. He said to her, Corey, if you're going on the train, when do I give you your train ticket? Do I give it to you a year before you go? And she said, no, Papa. And she said, he said, but when do I give it to you? A month? And she said, no, you give it to me the day that I'm to go so that I won't lose him. And she said, her papa told her, okay, Corey, when the time comes for you to suffer, God will give you your ticket on that day. He will supply the grace that you need for what you have to go through at that time. So you stay in your word, you stay in your prayers and you look to that day. Our faith has been bought in blood. The earliest Christians paid for it tremendously. Read any history of the Christian church and you'll see it. One of the most beautiful stories that I ever learned, and I was a church history major, was about the Bishop of Smyrna, whose name was Polycarp. How when he was an old man up in his 90s, he was loved greatly. And how... A persecution was unleashed, and they came into Smyrna to arrest this old man. And when they came to arrest him, he did not wish to be arrested but to escape so that he could keep on helping Christians, but they followed him. He was old, and he had gone to a farmhouse. Some Roman soldiers traced him to the farmhouse. He escaped that one and went to the next one. And then by torturing a slave, they were able to find out from the slave to what other farmhouse he had gone and they followed him there and they arrested him. And they took him out and placed him into a carriage where the proconsul of the city was. And on the way back into the city, the proconsul, taking him to the arena said to Polycarp, that he would allow him to go free if he would only take a little pinch of incense and place it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp said no, that he would not do this. When they arrived at the arena, the proconsul literally shoved that old man who was almost a 100 out of the carriage onto the ground. He spoke kindly to the people who tried to pick him up they dragged him into the arena. The Roman interrogator there who did not wish to put the old man to death, but who applied the political test to him again, asked him if he would take a pinch of incense and place it on an altar and say Caesar is Lord. And I copied from authentic church history records of what happened his great words. He said, no, I will not take your advice. The man said, but all you have to do is to place a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Listen to what this grand old man says. If you are trying to find out from me whether or not I am a Christian, the answer is yes. I am a Christian. If you are asking me whether or not I will burn incense to Caesar as Lord, the answer is no. I will not, he was then threatened with beasts, that didn't work, he was threatened with fire. (laughs) I love his reply at that. He said there's going to be a bigger fire than this one day and there will be a fire in eternity which is the judgment of God. This fire will last for a little while and then I'll be dead but the fire you go to will last forever and forever. Finally he was given a chance to renounce Christ again and he said his last beautiful words, 80 and six years have I served him. He has never done me or mine any wrong. How can I deny my savior and my king? So these are what we have. The examples of the holy apostles prophets, the company of martyrs. There's a great cloud of witnesses watching us. There are untold, voiceless millions in Russia, in China, in Cuba, in the hard places of the world today who love Jesus Christ and who suffer for him and who want us to be like a shaken torch that will burn brightly and that will stand firm for Jesus Christ in, the, in this day in which we live. Our Heavenly Father, we live in the midst of a perishing society. We need to be able to see thee, thou who art invisible, and know that behind all of the things that are happening in history, you're working your own purposes out. We need, O oh God, to endure placing our eyes upon Jesus and being determined to be faithful to him, knowing that he is the ultimate conqueror, knowing that one day he will return again, knowing that he who has died to give us salvation has also granted us the gracious Holy Spirit to teach us how to live the life that will bring greatest honor to him. Help us to exemplify these beatitudes, Help us to show that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Forgive us when we have failed thee, and strengthen us through what we have thought about and learned from your word today. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.